Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, summertime, and the reading is all about historical fiction in this special August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. For the next hour, we will explore the world of books described as historical fiction, imagined stories based on real-life events and people, combining the best of history and novels. Some books of historical fiction are now considered classics. For example, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Beloved by Toni Morrison. Top-selling books of historical fiction include Anita Diamond's The Red Tent, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, Min Jin Lee's Pachinko, and Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. Here's an excerpt from an Amazon Prime television series based on Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad. We all have our place. And you and me, slave and a slave catcher, the master and the colored boss, I mean, everyone from the politicians all the way down to the, the new arrivals flooding into the halls. The weak of your tribe, they're already weeded out in mean, the diamond slave ships that die of our European parks on the fields working in the gold cotton. Historical fiction is a big part of today's fiction book market. Sales and library checkouts indicate readers are increasingly drawn to the genre. One reason, recent books of historical fiction have not only helped make history come alive, but have also helped bring little-known stories to light. Expect to see beach bags stuffed with books, chronicling historic events with thrilling plots, captivating dialogue, and writing that keeps you turning the pages well into the night. Joining me remotely, three authors whose historical fiction novels are imaginative retellings of American history, many believe they know, and another just coming to the fore, and one which bridges the histories of America and another country. Jabari Asim is the author of seven books for adults, including his latest novel, Yonder, a story of love and friendship set during the time of American enslavement. Asim has also written 11 books for children. He is an associate professor of writing, literature, and publishing at Emerson College and is also a playwright and poet. The former book editor for The Washington Post is the winner of a Guggenheim Fellowship in nonfiction and a former member of the nonfiction panel for the National Book Foundation. Jabari Asim lives in Boston. Welcome back, Jabari. Hi, Callie. I'm so glad to be here. So glad to have you. Sabina Murray is the author of four books. Her latest, The Human Zoo, follows a biracial woman navigating life between America and the Philippines under a President Duterte-like dictator. Murray teaches in the creative writing department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is also a screenwriter. Her second book, The Caprices, won the Penn Faulkner Award, and she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Radcliffe Institute Fellowship. 
Sabina Murray lives in Western Massachusetts. Hello, Sabina. Kelly, thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. Jenny Tinhui Yong is the author of Four Treasures of the Sky, the story of a young Chinese girl kidnapped and brought to America, caught up in the targeted racism of the Chinese Exclusion Act. This is Zhang's first novel. Her stories have appeared in multiple literary publications, including The Rumpus and Calyx. Her articles and essays have been published in HuffPost, Bustle, and The Cut, and she is a Kundaman Fiction Fellow. Jenny Tinghui Zhang lives in Austin, Texas. Hello and welcome. Hi, Callie. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad to have all three of you. All of your books are stunning in their detail and in their story plot. We're not going to give away, by the way, any of the great details of the book. People have to go read them. But I'm going to start with each of you giving me a brief description of your book that you feel we need to have to enjoy this conversation, but without giving away (laughs) the good stuff. So I'll start with you, Jabari. Sure. Uh, Yonder is set in 1852, and as as you noted, it was an era of enslavement for uh, people of African descent. And the question that I'm really exploring is, how is it possible to love in impossible circumstances? So I follow the uh, adventures and misadventures of a number of couples as they uh, attempt to navigate the complexities of being enslaved and also being in love. Okay, Jenny. Yeah, so Four Treasures of the Sky is a story about a young Chinese girl named Dayu who is kidnapped from her home in China, shipped across the ocean in a bucket of coal, ends up in a brothel in San Francisco, and eventually ends up in Idaho, is trying to make her way back to China through the American West, um, all while the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 is in the backdrop. So the novel is an exploration of identity and art, but also a question of how do you survive in a place that wants to exclude and uh, decimate you? Hmm. Sabina. Yeah, so the human zoo is this, it, it looks at what it's like to live in Manila in the Philippines under a dictator. And I kind of have these two story threads. I send my character back to Manila where she grew up and she's researching um, uh, the story of the human zoos where people were actually sent to the US and showed up in places like Coney Island and were treated as zoo animals. So tribal people from the Philippines, the indigenous people that happened. So this character is Filipino. She goes back to research this book and she sees what it's like to be in Manila living under a dictator who in the book is called Gumbok, but bears a startling resemblance to Duterte. Um, and that's, that's kind of, that's a good place to start with the book because it kind of has, has a number of, uh, plot points happen throughout. So I'll just stop there. Okay. Well, now let's talk about what it takes to bring these fictional stories to life based on the research, because these books are quite detailed and a lot of it is not your imagination. It's actually real life. Um, This time I'll start with you, Jenny. Tell me about the research process. Yeah. So for me, you know, having never written anything remotely historical before, I was quite daunted by the idea of 
even touching the genre. But um, what I did was, you know, I only did as much research as would allow me to complete a scene and move the story forward. So for me, the research was very much layer by layer with each revision. Um, a lot of it was around, you know, what were the experiences of Chinese immigrants like in the American West in the late 19th century, um, the experiences of Chinese women in San Francisco in the brothels, what was the Chinese Exclusion Act doing to people at that time, and what were the laws, legislation, court rulings, um, attitudes, rhetoric that were leading up to um, this moment in history. So, it was a lot of online research because I was doing it during the pandemic. Um, a lot of nonfiction reading, research, scholarly articles, as well as um, you know reading the work of academics and scholars who had gone out and gotten firsthand accounts from people. Let's take a listen to an excerpt from your book. This is early on in the book. Start at uh, page 31. From these sessions, I learned that the ink brush, ink stick, paper, and ink stone were called the four treasures of the study. I learned that in addition to painting the right strokes in the right order, the artist was also responsible for maintaining a balance of self in order to create good calligraphy. Calligraphy, Master Wong would call out, is not only about the methods of writing, but also about cultivating one's character. He believed in it as a philosophy, not only as a practice. It was something to be carried for the rest of the calligrapher's life, the ink replacing blood, the brush replacing arms. To be a calligrapher was to apply the principles of calligraphy to every action, reaction, and decision, whether on or off the page. This is the kind of person you can become, Master Wong told his students the kind who approaches the world as a blank sheet of paper every time. For him, there was no such thing as anxiety, danger, worry, or loss. There was always an answer if the principles of calligraphy were applied. See the character, let what you know guide you. In life, he was the same. See the desired outcome, let what you know guide you to it. And above all, you must practice. What makes good handwriting, he would ask the students. A steady hand, someone answered. Patience and a keen eye, said another. A good basic foundation, tried a third. All true, Master Wong said, but you are forgetting the most important of them all, to be a good human. In calligraphy, you must have respect for what you are writing and who you are writing for. But above all, you must have respect for yourself. It is the monumental task of creating unity between the person you are and the person you could be. Think, what kind of person could you become, both as yourself and as an artist? That's my guest, Jenny Tinhui Zhang, and she's reading from her book, Four Treasures of the Sky. Um, Jabari Asim, I'd like you to talk to me about the research that you did. I think this is a period of history that a lot of people think they know, but I think recent times have demonstrated perhaps not, because uh, your book, as you've said, takes place during the time of American enslavement. Yeah, I think one, one thing that all of these books, nonfiction and fiction, um, is telling us is that we've barely scratched the surface of, of what we think we know about the period and that there's so much more to tell. In terms of my research, uh, it just happily overlapped with a lot of nonfiction projects that I was working on. 
So it enabled me uh, to work on my nonfiction projects as and work on the novel at the same time. So for example, uh, I had been working on a, a piece for a forthcoming book um, on Frederick Douglass. So I had to reread Frederick Douglass's three memoirs. I read uh, Henry Wingcheck's uh, book, uh, An Imperfect God, which is about the relationship between George Washington and the people that he stole. Um, and just uh, a number of narratives from people who had escaped or who had endured and outlived the institution of, of enslavement and then sort of uh, filtering those through my imagination. And so many of the incidents that are taking place in the book were based on actual incidents that I, that I then gave a fictional spin to uh, and attempted to change them in some way, but but are rooted, rooted in real life experiences. So I'd like you to read uh, from page 49. Okay. The baby bathed and rubbed down with warm oil was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Preacher Ransom held her and spoke in tongues, mumbling ancient phrases while we hummed softly. Once finished, he passed the baby to Sarah. She gathered her in her arms, moving in a circle. Each of us paused when we reached the quietly squirming infant. One by one, we whispered. A baby fortunate to survive long enough to acquire the gift of speech learned quickly about the world into which she was born. There was the likelihood she would never have a chance to use such words as mother or father. Instead, she would learn terms like stolen and thief right after she learned her own name. But no matter the circumstances, she would always find sustenance in the seven words whispered in her ear. They were our constant companions through every tribulation and every brief moment of transcendence. They reminded us to breathe in the morning and be grateful for air. For adults to think of their own seven words while taking part in a whispering was not unusual. Quite naturally, my words came to mind and I saw them as vividly as phrases printed in the pages of the rules of civility. Stay, think, hold, fancy, endure, give, light. But they quickly gave way to the words Green said to me when I learned that my iris had been sold away, carted off only to die in an accident just miles from the spot where I last saw her. His advice, that it would be best to think no more of her had seemed cold and unfeeling. I suddenly perceived that it nonetheless possessed the virtue of being true. I arrived at Sarah's shoulder and put my lips next to the baby's ear. I tried to speak as softly, as gently as I could. Forget, I whispered. That's my guest, Jabari Asim, reading from his book, Yonder. Over to you, Sabina. Now, the first two books by Jenny and Japari are set centuries past, but yours is set in contemporary Philippines. Talk about the research there, because you're actually, your character's a journalist, by the way, and often it's said that journalists write the first draft of history. So here you are closer to recent history upon which you based your fictional story. So talk about how that research may have differed from what Jabari and Jenny did. Wow, you know, that's a really, Kelly, that's a great way to put it because I was, I, I am not a journalist most of the time, but I was at one point 
sent to the Philippines, hired by Vice to go and find out, you know, they're interested in what was going on. This was in 2017. And they contacted me and said, do you think there's a story there? And I am very much a fiction writer. Um, I write essays, but I hadn't really done anything journalistic. I grew up in the Philippines. My mother was Filipino. And I actually, you know, I'm very comfortable in Manila. I speak bad, but rapid and functional Tagalog. So I, I thought about it and I just was wondering why, why is this dictator Duterte so popular? Um, and so I went and I researched that journalism piece that came out. And then I, I really felt, I felt committed to the region. It, I consider it home. I consider myself as having several homes, but you know, Manila is definitely one of them. And I, I wanted to do something that brought attention to what was going on in that region. And I'm a fiction writer. So you don't have the ability to step away and understand what that's going to mean as we move into, you know, as we're rattling into the future, we don't know why this is going to be significant. So that did put a lot of pressure on me to try to think about what elements of this time in, in Philippine history reminded me of other times. And I had lived in Manila during the dictatorship of Marcos, and I was aware that this great wheel of oppression comes around frequently in the Philippines. And we just went through an election in Manila and sure enough, Marcos's son has been elected president um, right after Duterte. So those, those were the kinds of things I was thinking about. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And how can I let people know the importance of this present moment without the ability to get any distance on it? I'd like you to read from page 54 from The Human Zoo. Okay. I was talking to a taxi driver, he said finally, and I asked him what he thought the major problem was in this country. I had assumed he would say corruption, but do you know what he said? Traffic. I could see why a taxi driver would say that, or anyone for that matter, I replied stupidly. I felt that I was delivering someone else's lines but couldn't seem to stop. Do you speak some Filipino? You mean Tagalog. I had, of course. No, well, just a few words. He halted and adjusted himself on the seat. The taxi driver spoke some English. Laird checked his phone, which might've been a tick, but he seemed to be composing himself, thinking too deeply. Traffic affects all the workers in the city. Hours that could be productively spent, they waste like this. He gestured out the window, we were now crawling along España. In front of a jolly bee, a giant bee mascot was waving and handing out flyers. What the Filipinos need, he continued, is better infrastructure, work on the light rail transit, expansion into the neighboring areas surrounding Manila. With this workforce and our labor a major international economic presence, there's no need to be struggling like this. He nodded affirming his statement and apparently waiting for a response. All that is fairly obvious, I said. Who doesn't want better infrastructure? Laird was suddenly alert. Yet you're anti-gumbok. Absolutely. I know that overseas workers overwhelmingly support him, I said. And his ideas for expanding Metro Manila largely reflect yours, but he hasn't solved anything. Of course I'm anti-Gumbok. But you are in the minority, Laird said. It was your article in Vice that taught me that and all the reasons for his popularity. 
people have made peace with his presidency. His supporters may be, but not me, and I'm not alone. I set my eyes on Laird, even if Gumbok did manage to fix the light rail transit and traffic. I wouldn't support him. He's a thug and a murderer. That's my guest, Sabina Murray, reading from her book, The Human Zoo. So a question to all of you. Um, You're all, as it turns out, authors of color, writing about, to some extent, some issues that relate to that. And so you have very distinctive voices. That makes all of three of the books really captivating to read. But I was taken with language that you chose to use. Now, in your case, Japari, you started characterizing enslaved versus not enslaved people with language that you created. And uh, Jenny and Sabine, I want to get to you about how you use various words in your pieces. But let's start with you, Japari. Why was it important for you to define, I guess, the, the groups of people that we have come to know colloquially as someone who was enslaved and then someone who, quote, quote unquote, owned them and give them different terminology? Sure. Uh, I mean, in, in a lot of my work, I write about what I call narrative combat, uh, which is the clash of stories, which function in, in a way that attempts to, to make sense of reality. And I was influenced in particular by a couple of writers and, and their thoughts on language. And one was Baldwin, who said, you know, the root function of language is to control the universe by describing it. Right. And then uh, Richard Wright, who described uh, the English language in fiction and, and other genres, as a battlefield on which blacks and whites fought over the nature of reality, right? So who controls the language gets to control the reality. And I wanted the language of the characters to reflect a black gaze as opposed to a white gaze. And so as to see their oppressors, not as owners, but as thieves who who believed that it was possible to steal human beings, who believed that it was possible uh, to steal land. And so it was important for me to have the language throughout be consistent in reflecting that kind of worldview. And to be clear, the people who are enslaved are called the stolen and the people who are, are enslaving them are called thieves, just to so the yes. listeners know what's going on. Now, Jenny, in your case, I've seen this happen more and more in the books that I'm reading, particularly by authors of color. There is a lot of language, Chinese language in this case, and you don't define it. It's in context, so the reader can get the context or not, (laughs) or you can look it up or do whatever. But that in itself makes a statement, it seems to me. I personally call it the Juno Diazation of of novel writing because um, that was the first time that I noticed it in his books. He just wrote it in there, variations of Spanglish and then some Spanish. You get it, you get it, you don't, look it up. Um, And I was wondering if that was intentional on your part. Am I putting you in the Juno category and that's not what you meant? But why did you decide to, because the book is very rich with language. It absolutely was intentional. I've come up through writing workshops, creative writing workshops, undergraduate and graduate level. And so many of those workshops were always with white peers. And I remember I would italicize words that were in Chinese. I would put quotations around them or I would explicitly explain them. And it wasn't until I think maybe six or seven years ago that I realized that by doing this, I wasn't really telling you know, the story that I know truthfully, which is that 
I don't need to explain this because I already know and, and the readers that I'm writing to would already know. So I made a conscious decision with this book because our narrator, our main character is a Chinese girl um, and Chinese is her first language. She learns English later on, which I talk about in the book because of all of this, I didn't want to um, even call attention to the Chinese at all. Hmm. Same question to you, Sabina, because there's quite a, a, a rich usage of the local language. It's true. Yeah. And I really agree with what um, Jenny said. What's been said about this is it's, it's a very interesting moment in how people are, you know, absorbing language as what I would call American English. And when you, when you insist on italicizing certain words and not other, it kind of has this way of underscoring kind of this myth of white America that we don't live in. Um, and I'm saying, if, why, aren't, why aren't we, why aren't we um, italicizing lasagna, for example? Um, that's an Italian word. Clearly, wouldn't it be funny if every time we had a word that wasn't English, English, we italicize it, the whole book would be in italics. And I, you know, also as being somebody who's, you know, Tagalog speaking, and they're just, they say they're not, there's no, there's no Filipino in, a, in American English. And the word bundok is just the right bundok, right? Boonies. That's just the normal Tagalog word for a mountain. It's the only word we have. But the familiarity allows that word not to be italicized in books. So I think people are hitting the point. I have got no pushback from my editors at all. They were just like, mm-hmm, thank you. We'll make sure the copy editor knows and it will be fine. So it seems like it's words, little words here and there, but it's a tremendously powerful message and it's hugely important. And just from my perspective, somebody who's mixed race Filipino, I mean, you know, the US and the Philippines have been tied with each other for and since the Spanish American War and even before that. And it's a recognition of that, you know, you're in the Philippines, but guess what? The Philippines is also in the US. Well, as a reader, I just want to make clear to my listeners that it's all very accessible. You're not left out. You can figure it out. And in fact, I find that it draws you into the story and the plot and the people more closely because I don't come out of the period, if you will, you know, because of any kind of special, as you would say, italization or any other kind of explanation of it. It's a part of who these people are and who they represent, in in your case, uh, Jabari, and it makes perfect sense. I'm just fascinated to see more and more of it. And I'm not surprised to hear that, uh, Sabina, your editor is not even responding to it anymore because it's become, I hope, commonplace. What is the central theme? Um, I have my idea about each of your books and and what you're hoping to accomplish. Um, But what did you really want people to walk away with, Jenny Tingwei Zhong, for Four Treasures of the Sky? What What did you want your readers to come away with at the end of that book? Yeah, I think, you know, the book is dealing with some large issues, especially around uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act and just anti-Chinese violence during that period and how it kind of leads us to where we are now. That's, of course, you know, the, the larger sort of message. But honestly, when I was writing this book, I was just wanting to write a book about a young girl's journey. And it just so happened that so much of her journey is tied with the history of the United States and the treatment of Chinese in the United States. So if anything, I would want people to walk away just 
loving this character of Dai, but also being open, hopefully, to learning more about the history of the treatment of Chinese in America. Same question to you, Jabari. I think ultimately I want people to reflect on the power of love, which is what I write about in, in all my fiction. I'm kind of fascinated with love, love stories, how couples got together, how they came apart, that kind of thing. So, I mean, so Yonder explores two couples, William and Margaret and Cato and Pandora, and each character is forced to sort of ask themselves the question, what am I willing to do for love? How much am I willing to give up? How much am how much am I willing to risk? And so I want readers to sort of reflect on that and, and also consider that you know, African-Americans exist and endure and flourish in the United States as a result of those bonds of love that they forged uh, in really hellish circumstances, but, but really about love and, and how it can get you through and has gotten many people through and over. Sabina? Oh, those are great responses. Um, with a human zoo, part of the challenge for me is just to say, please be in the Philippines for 250 pages and, and realize that the world is very full and accessible um, and not, and that people in different places are, are just like other people, you know, it's not, they're, they're connected in ways. So I think for me, a lot of the the challenge with the book was trying to say, see the connections that we have with all of these people that we may not experience the lives that they're going through. But if we spend time with them, that we see that there's there's so much alike. Um, and also when I was writing the book, I was thinking about how we can be complicit. You know, what, what are our responsibilities to people who could benefit from our help, but who are far away, you know, and also the importance of witnessing. So the things you can read the news stories and we we do that. And there are many different situations that compel us to read the news stories, but to just take a moment to step back from that news feed feeling and to just really say, okay, there are people, these are all people that have created the need for this news story. I think that's what really was inspiring me. Hmm. There's a little bit of uh, something interesting across all three books. In Yonder, Jabari, there's some what what is often called magical realism. In Four Treasures of the Sky, Jenny, there's this mythology, this real mythology. And Sabina, some folklore, interestingly enough, even in contemporary Philippines in the human zoo. I'd love you all to respond to that. And you can tell me, no, I'm wrong. <laughs> or, but, but why was this important to have this as a part of your book? I'll start with you, Jenny. Yeah, so what you're referring to is the character of Lin Dai, who my main character, Dai, is named after. And this is a character from a very real Chinese novel called Dream of the Red Chamber. It's one of China's four great classical novels. So everyone has read them. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. Um, and this, this kind of manifestation, some people have called her a ghost, others have called her just like a figment of uh, Dai's imagination, but she really serves as um, almost the foil to Dai and also represents this inner child version of her, you know, she has arguments with her, um, she challenges her, she um, comforts her, and oftentimes when Dai is in a difficult situation, Lin Dai is the one who helps her get out of it. So, you know, when I was writing this and 
thought to include this ghost form or manifestation of Lin Dayu. It wasn't because I was thinking about genres or elements of genres. It really was because in the moment I thought, you know, she's about to go on this very difficult journey. There are very horrible things that are about to happen to her. She can't be alone. So it was really me just wanting to give her something to hold on to and help her through her journey. All right. Uh, Jabari, what about magical realism in yonder? Well, I think, um, you know, it's it's not a phrase that I thought of while writing uh, the book, and it does come up in, in responses to it. And I, I don't discourage it. Uh, but it's not what I was thinking about, sort of like uh, like Jenny said, I wasn't really thinking about uh, genre very much. There are a couple of characters uh, whom I won't name because it, it could, to reveal them as ancestors can spoil the plot. But there are certain uh, characters who are ancestors who are really from, from a different uh, plane, chronological plane, who intervene uh, in the lives of the characters. And that that is less a literary technique than a reflection of of my own beliefs. I mean, I, I, I believe that I write with my ancestors looking over my shoulder and I, I literally write with pictures of my known ancestors on the on the desk next to the computer. So I believe that the, the, the space, if you will, uh, between where we live and what we might call the spiritual realm for lack of a better phrase is permeable. And, and that you know actions go back and forth across this barrier. And I wanted the, uh, the events in the novel to reflect that as well. All right, folklore and the human zoo. Am I right, Sabina? Oh, you're so right. <laughs> I mean, that's just how, I don't know that. A lot of this story, I, I, I have characters in there who very closely resemble members of my family who actually responded to the book favorably, thank God. But, you know, why are you telling the story about the dog? There's a story about a dog in there who was brought into the house because he was uh, an albino dog and my uncle had been a Spaniard. And so when he died and then a dog was born, that was an albino. They thought, oh, he, oh, it's a white dog. So it must be, you know, Uncle Pitoy. So they brought him into the house. I, I'm growing up with that and this dog running around the house. I kept thinking, you know what? I should write about that someday. Um, and so I did. And it weirdly fix, fits much better in the realm of fiction than it did in reality. In reality, it was bizarre. In the book, it seems like it's found its place. But yeah. Also in the Philippines, we just live with ghosts all the time. Everybody believes in ghosts. You almost, if, you're, if your ancestor dies and doesn't come back to visit you, it seems almost ungenerous. So for me, the folklore is just, it's impossible to write in a realistic way about you know, the Philippines and Manila without including all of these elements because they're not outside of life. You know, there is inside of your day-to-day -day experiences, what you're going to eat, how you're gonna get from one place to the other. It's just, it's a part of that whole Filipino experience. Coming up, we're continuing our hour-long August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Our special guests are three authors whose work uses historical events and persons as a basis for fictional storytelling. Authors Jabari Asim, Sabina Murray, and Jenny Tingwei Zhang have written intimate stories against the backdrop of some of history's signature cultural events. More of our conversation next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. It's our special August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. And we're talking with writers who craft stories using real history as a foundation for the narrative. According to the website Book Riot, historical fiction is typically based on events of at least 50 years in the past. But current books have also referenced more recent historical events. Authors Jabari Asim, Sabina Murray, and Jenny Tingwei-Jong are joining me for this hour-long conversation about historical fiction. I want uh, our listeners to hear a little bit more from each of your books. I'm going to start with you, Sabina. Um, Let's read from page 177. The call demanding ransom came four days after Bibo's funeral. Abu Sayyaf wanted 30 million pesos, and they wanted it in two weeks, or Laird would be executed. Laird's parents, Richard and Crystal, had arrived in Manila along with my Tita Grammy's granddaughter, the girl Laird was marrying. I didn't want to meet the parents. I reminded myself that I was in no way responsible for Laird, that I hardly knew him. But this in itself produced an element of shame. He had admired my writing, and I should at least have appreciated that. He had been serious in his desire to improve things although the particulars of this desire remained unknown. I had been successful in protecting myself from him, and now he was just a mystery sealed in silence. Jose Martin had also been caught by surprise by the abduction. He thought that Laird didn't fit the profile. Abu Sayyaf kidnapped a lot of people, and at the current moment were thought to have 20 hostages. But the ones who made the headlines were the white guys, the two Canadians, John Ridsdale and Robert Hall, who had their boats moored at a resort, easy prey with access to dollars. The Canadian government did not do business with terrorists, and first Robert Hall had been executed, the matter of his final moments unflinchingly recorded. Ridsdale's family had desperately attempted to collect the funds for his release, but while they were still counting the dollars as they trickled in, he too had been killed. I remember following the story after watching the fate of Jürgen Kantner, the German who had been snatched from his boat, his wife shot as he looked on. These three had all been beheaded. John Ridsdale's head had been left on the streets of Jolo Township in a plastic bag. Townsfolk had seen two men on a motorcycle deposit the bag and then track quickly out of town. Then they were absorbed back into the jungle, improbably disappearing without a trace. That's my guest, Sabina Murray, reading from her book, The Human Zoo. I want to say that all three of your books are, of course, at the core, have some politics and policy, which you, of course, play out with all of your characters. But what I want my readers to know is that most of the time I'm reading these books and my heart is in my throat. Um, you're reading very calmly, but I felt like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? The whole time. And it, I didn't expect them to be thrillers of the kind that, you know, are advertised in that way. Uh, Jabari from Yonder, page 175. 175. Uh, Sabina, that was so intense in a, in a mesmerizing way. I, I'm, uh, I, I got so involved in it that I, 
I have to ask Callie to repeat the page number for me. <laughs> she wants me to read from Thank you. What? Page 175. This is what I meant about. 175. Oh yeah, okay. All right. I got, I oh, my God. I, I was to, hard return, in my throat. I have to return to the, the space that I'm in because I, I left it for a minute there. Okay. I understand. Okay. Here we go. Um, Margaret glared at me. Well, you were slow in the understanding. We like Ransom because he reminds us there's something else yonder not just these awful places where we bleed and sweat to fatten thieves' purses. He helps us remember that, but not you. You don't want to hear about it, much less talk about it. That's so I can go on. That's so I can get through the day. That's so Margaret turned her face from me and offered the palm of her hand in its place. Enough with the soft talk. I'm feeling hard right now. I need you to be the same way. I will be heading north before it gets too cold to go. Winter's not far off. I want you with me. You can't just waltz out of here as merry as you please. And if you could, what would you do next? Waltz? Do I look like a woman who waltzes? Do I love like a woman who waltzes? Remember who you're talking to, William. Remember who I am. You're many women in one, and I want all of them to live. I was quite satisfied with what I said, but Margaret would have none of it. The longer we live here, the more we lose. Fingers, teeth, tongues, people we love. I'm sick of losing, William. I raised my hands and backed away in surrender. Hear me, Margaret. I'm committed to this. I'm committed to you. Then you'd best get moving. Looks to me like you're standing still. You've endured this hell for harvest after harvest, and suddenly you want to leave right now? Why? What's changed? Her eyes glistening with tears, she took my hands and placed them gently on her belly. I got your child in me, she said. I remembered the night I let her be stronger than me, when I let her pull me into her and keep me there until I was spent. The night she told me to run and run and run. That's my guest, Jabari Asim, reading from his book, Yonder. And now over to you, Jenny, of Four Treasures of the Sky. This is Jenny Tinwei Jong. I'd like you to read from page 148. The customers who still come are mostly Chinese. They were not born here, but traveled from Guangdong with hopes of gold and work, searching for money that they would one day bring back to their families. You remind me of my son, one of them tells me, tears filling his brown eyes. You remind me of everything, I want to reply. It is a childish truth. What he reminds me of is something I did not know could go missing, the feeling of being where you should be. There is a difference between being a newcomer to a city and being in a world that does not resemble you, that reminds you every moment of your strangeness. This is what Idaho is to me. And so when our Chinese customers come asking for millet and green onions, buying licorice and cinnamon, I watch them with tenderness, following their movements. I miss you, and I do not even know you, I want to say to the miner, the launderer, the servant. But I always stop myself from getting any closer, remembering that night at the inn in Boise, the pain between my legs and the wailing. The few white customers who do come into our store are furtive, quiet. They act as if they have done something wrong by being here. 
They never stay for long. Because they are so few, I give them their own names and stories. There is a woman who wears black and only buys ginger root. I call her a widow. There is a group of young schoolboys who stand outside the store shoving and laughing, each daring the other to come inside. The one who finally does, I call him a soldier. These customers are not enough to keep the store running forever, but Nam and Lum are not worried yet. They have a plan to bring in more white customers by matching the inventory at Foster's Goods. I am not worried either. What happens with the store, with the customers, with Nam and Lum is not important to me. The days pass by without touching me, as if I have been plucked out and removed and placed to watch from the side. I am the character for lost, me, a grain of rice walking nowhere. When I speak, my mouth moves, but I am far away. When I sweep, my hands feel ocean water, not the handle of a broom. My body may be here in Pierce, but my heart is searching for Jifu. That's my guest, Jenny Tinwe Young, reading from her book, Four Treasures of the Sky. Now another question for all three of you. So it seems to me that historical fiction, such as I've read about it as a genre, has rules. One of the big ones being you can take off from the real events, which you all have, and the in some cases, real persons, but, you know, inventing characters, but not in changing the reality. So the history has to be what it is. In other words, I should not be um, doing, as I often do, look at some of these, quote unquote, based on history movies, and the information is all wrong. The history is wrong. Um, I don't mind the fictionalization of it, but, but the history is wrong. But it seems to me that you all are bound by that, or do you feel you are? Jabari. No, not at all. Um, when I hear that you shouldn't do something, I'm often inclined to do the opposite. <laughs> Never tell me what I can't do uh, as, as a creative person, uh, and particularly with, with this genre. Uh, you know, Charles Johnson, who won the National Book Award for Middle Passage some years ago, wrote an essay a few years back saying, don't write any more novels about uh, the period of enslavement. That story's been told. Uh, and the minute I read that essay, I was like, oh, man, I have to write a book about that. So, uh, so no, I, I don't pay. I, I think the, you know, in fiction, the storyteller's first obligation is to hold the reader's attention. Right. And so that's what guided me throughout. I, I want the reader to continue to turn the page. And, and that was uppermost in my mind. OK. Um, how do you feel about that, Jenny? Yeah, I am a very rules-oriented person. So, you know, I also thought, okay, with historical fiction, I just have to make sure everything is exactly as it was. But as I was doing research and, and finding just the pure fact that a lot of this history hasn't even been included, like we've been excluded from history, um, and the fact that, you know, you have to remember that history is often written by the victors. So with that in mind, I went into this book thinking, okay, I'm going to adhere as much as I can to the history that I have found, um, but I'm not going to feel beholden to, um, you know, the absolute true version of events. It is, as Jabari said, still a work of fiction and, and your job to keep the reader's attention. Um, and for me, as, as the writer, it was also a question of, okay, how do we write ourselves back into a history that has sought to forget us? Hmm. Sabina. Well, I changed the name of the president and then he bears a startling resemblance to Duterte. 
But I did that so I could kind of change events at the end and make things up. And that was a real, that was a real departure from what I usually do. I've written quite a few historical um, pieces at this point, short stories and uh, a novel. And I just felt that for me to get to the larger truth, for me to make a sense of immediacy and to make it compelling, I was going to have to create more plot than reality was giving to me. Um, and that felt weird, but the way that I read, you know, for example, a book like The Underground Railroad, um, it really messes with the reality that we know and even the histories and the way that Whitehead goes through that book. But in, I felt that at the end of that, I had learned a greater truth than I would have if he had just stuck completely to what was verifiable historically. So I think that there are some facts that if you start, if you if you change things that all readers cling to as a way of getting into their kind of their fantasy life, they say, okay, now this feels real to me because of this one fact, then you can do anything you want. Um, but I think it always has to be in the service of a larger truth if you change things. If it's not in the service of a larger truth and it just is an act of whimsy, I don't think it comes across um, as, as really emotionally sound. So here's something else that I admired about all three of your books. There were little characteristics of each of your stories that helped me stay in the story and that were so characteristic of the place and time. Sabina, since I'm talking to you, I was just mesmerized about how many ways you could talk about the heat and the traffic. And I just felt like, wow, I'll know how long it'll take to get somewhere if I'm ever in the Philippines. And boy, is it hot. And I'd love you to speak to intentionally. I know you wanted it there, but did you mean for it to be as, I guess, for us to be as immersive as we were with, with those two things? Well, it is, you know, a lot of it is that if you want to create the atmosphere of a place, you have to do it truthfully. And Manila is often very, very hot and you are always stuck in traffic. And you do become philosophical about it. And, you know, as writers, we play games. I'm sure Jabari and Jenny have these games that you play to get yourself focused in and excited. One of them for me was how many ways can I describe heat and traffic? Because if I start writing without the heat and traffic, anyone who's been to Manila is just gonna be, this is, this is not accurate. Um, this, I, I, I don't feel, I'm not feeling Manila, but if I don't do it in a creative way, people are like, well, this is very accurate. And as in the reality, the heat is oppressive and the traffic is tedious and why would I want to be in that? So it was a kind of a challenge um, and it was, but it was a very fun challenge for me because you can't do anything in Manila if you're not looking through that kind of wall of heat and you don't, you're not either suffering the traffic or being presented with the specter of having to deal with it sometime in the near future. Well, it worked. I, I felt it very intensely. Um, with Jabari, with Yonder, in your many ways of talking about shackling virtually and otherwise, was very intense and, of course, very important to the storyline. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's like you say, it, it's... Uh shackling or, or, or coupling or confinement or you know metaphors for for the black experience and and to a, a larger extent the country you know Richard Wright has this uh, observation where he, he said years ago the Negro is America's metaphor right so how many ways does the black experience play out and can be expanded to apply to all these other different situations so one way I did that was sort of through uh, 
the exploration of borders and multiple uses of the word yonder throughout what can yonder mean? Can it be, you know, this metaphysical term that speaks to say a life beyond this one? Can it mean life simply beyond the borders of the plantation? What are all the different ways that it can play out? And I wanted the characters to use that word as a basis of philosophical exploration where they get uh, ask serious questions to one another about their place in the world. Why, why do we think we're here? Why do we think we were born here? Why do you think we're in these circumstances? And what are the ways that we can resist them, right? So, uh, so language was a way of, of helping me do that. So Jenny, I came away with so many feelings emotionally tied to the ocean, absence of or importance of or nearness of, um, and also a subset of that, it was all about writing, like the physical act of writing and expression. Um, and those two characteristics were really important to me in terms of in helping me immerse myself in the story. Uh, were those two what you were trying to underscore? I think so. And I think, you know, the, the ocean is really a representation of Dayu's relationship to her home because she is born in a kind of seaside village. She for the first 12 or so years of her life is close to the ocean. So in the book, the ocean is this representation of home. And, you know, she often talks about in Boise, there's, there's no ocean, there's no salt in her hair. There's no kind of that humid heat. Um, yeah. Um, one question as we close here for all of you that I would be remiss if I did not ask, as we've said, you're all authors of color. You're in many instances writing about situations that you bring your perspective to that help enrich the understanding of the history and, and the story that you tell through your characters. But we are in a time where stories written by authors of color and featuring characters of color are being pulled from bookshelves. That's not new. But what is new or that some states have actually passed legislation that the kind of subject matter that you each are discussing in your books cannot be discussed or taught. And I wonder what your response is as people who have written about beautifully the kind of history that I wish everybody would read about. So I'll start with you, Jenny. Yeah. So in my case, you know, I didn't learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act until the last semester of my undergrad. Um, I went out of my way to take an Asian American studies intro course, and that's where I learned about it. And I certainly didn't know about all of these other things that kind of led up to it and all of the, um, you know, just acts of violence that occurred against Chinese people in the West around this time until I set out to write this book and actually pointedly do research around it. Um, and you know, now that the book has come out, hearing from readers, they'll send me messages. And, and so many people, whether or not they're Chinese or Asian American, will say, I had no idea that this was a thing. I've never heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act before. So that kind of response in my own experience just underscores how important it is that we continue telling the stories of this country's history as best we can. And, and from, you know, our own experiences. Um, it is dangerous and it is harmful to ban. I mean, I have so many feelings about the banning of books, but I'll just say it, it does a great disservice to us, you know, to exclude these stories. 
Jabari? You know, Tony Morrison talks about the master narrative, right? Who gets to impose the story? And the master narrative doesn't depend on race, but it depends on imbalances of power. And powerful people impose the master narrative on those with less power. One of the ways they reinforce it in the United States is through the banning and censoring of books. You know, I was listening to Jenny earlier talk about her story and the phrase writing ourselves into history, which appears in a number of books, came immediately uh, to mind. What she's doing is, is writing her people into the history of the West. Uh, and so what we're all doing in some form or another is storytelling as a form of resistance. And, and part of what we are resisting is movements like the current movement uh, to remove our books from the shelves, which is deplorable. Sabina. Yeah, well, one thing about the banning of books and much of the time fiction books is it's a recognition of the power of art and books. People who don't seem to think about art suddenly see the force that an articulate representation of people out of time can have in changing the minds of their young people. It is very interesting that actually it is a recognition of the power of writing um, and the way that we remember things. And so it really just enforces um, how powerful we are as writers if we are allowed to get our work into spaces where people will read it. You know, I, I'm glad that attention is being brought to the banning of books. It takes something that dramatic, but a lot of the time these choices happen at a lower register where what children are taught to read or what's available in libraries is, is narrowed down to a canon that doesn't represent the country we live in. Well, we'll have to leave it there. And all I can say to my listeners are, what fabulously written three books. You'll be captivated. And so I highly recommend them. And I'm so glad that all three of you agreed to join me. Thanks Thank for you so me. much. Thank you what? so much. Jabari Asim is the author of Yonder. Sabina Murray is the author of The Human Zoo. And Jenny Teenway Young is the author of Four Treasures of the Sky. All of their books are available online and in bookstores. Well, that's it for this week's special one-hour edition of Under the Radar. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.